If you're growing a business online, which I'm guessing you are since you're listening to this podcast, understanding technology and how technology and design work together is crucial for being able to grow your business more effectively. Today, I have my husband, Cobb, here to talk about the intersection of technology and design and how we can understand these things better to help our businesses grow. You're listening to Aesthetically Speaking. On this podcast, we're talking about all things branding, logos, colors, fonts, and the strategy behind it all. It seems like these days it's easier than ever to build an audience, but harder than ever to stand out online. My name's Rebecca, and I'm a brand strategist and designer. I'm here with my sister, Abby, a lawyer who needs a creative outlet. Together, we're going to talk about how to bring your brand to life. Welcome back to Aesthetically Speaking. I have my husband, Cobb, here. Hello. And before we start, I should probably tell you that Cobb is short for Jacob, and it's not a pet name, so you guys can call him Cobb, too. And I'm going to do a little intro for him, which is ironic because I actually hate it on guest podcasts when they do this long intro, but I think it will help you see why it's relevant to have him here. And what we're going to do is I'm going to ask him some questions and he's going to ask me some questions today. We met in our sixth grade class and got married in 2014. And I'm really excited to talk to Cobb today, not just because he's my husband, but because he actually has a job that is relevant and related to what I do as a designer, but indirectly. So Cobb, let's see, when we got married, we were at BYU and Cobb was working at the housing office, originally doing like financial stuff because he was going to get his degree in accounting. But as part of the prerequisites for the accounting program, he had to take an information systems class. And that was really interesting and exciting to him. And so he ended up changing his path to study information systems. So today I'm really excited because we're going to talk together about the intersection of technology and design and how design affects technology and technology affects design and how we can use both of those things together to understand the world and grow our businesses better. But to begin with, I just want to ask Cobb, a couple basic questions and we'll dive into some of his work and what he's done and his opinions about technology. But I did want to ask you to begin with, what is information systems, the field of study? And what do you what do you do? What's your job? Great question. (laughs) Uh, I can start with information systems because it may be a little easier to answer. I hope you know what you do. (laughs) I mean, I know what I do. No one else does. (laughs) No. And so information systems is basically the intersection, you know, the middle of the Venn diagram between business and technology. Okay. So it's a, it's a program in the business school at most universities, but it's, it's focused on technology. Uh, and really the hallmark of information systems in my mind is that it's practical technology. It's technology always through the lens of solving a problem, you know, usually, usually some sort of a business problem. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask, what's the difference between information systems and computer science? Yeah, uh, I never studied computer science, so I only know the ways that we made fun of those kids. <laughs> <laughs> but the stereotype, which I think there's there's some truth to, is is I guess that computer science is much. Uh, it's a little bit more low level. They're working with. It's so rude. Low level is not a bad thing. It just means that they're diving in a little bit more, a little bit deeper technically okay. um, to things like what they call data structures and algorithms, mm-hmm. a little bit more of even the theory of what's, what are good ways of computing or what are mm-hmm. good ways or, or, or more performant, more optimized ways uh, of writing code to do things. So, I mean, I guess I understand writing better code but like optimized ways of computing i'm like i have never once even thought about that (laughs) there's a there's a lot to think about there but yeah information systems is is much more focused again on on the practical application so we i had some my, my program was actually quite technical for an information systems program we built applications we learned lots about code and databases and all of these things but we also had classes and things like the the process the procedures around designing and building business software uh, what's called 
the software development lifecycle, which might mean something to some of your listeners. Don't or, count on it. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's this, this process, this lifecycle of how an application comes to be. And also things like project management. Like, mm-hmm. how do you actually, like, beyond just the, the theory of how to, how to develop software well mm-hmm. and how to code it, you know, how do you actually complete a technical project? How do you get it done on time? How do you make sure that it happens and doesn't just, how get... do you communicate to people who aren't technical people? Exactly. Yep. I love that. Okay. So coming back into the introduction a little bit after. Cobb finished his degree in information systems. He got a job in Dallas, which is where we live now. And if you have listened to the podcast, you remember some of my story. This was kind of the turning point for me in working full time as a creative manager for a corporation to working for myself, which I mentioned because it was kind of a turning point for both of us. So he was beginning his career as an IT consultant, and I was kind of pivoting in my life to starting my design business and going through that experience. Other things that you should know, Cobb and I actually designed and built an award-winning app together when we were students at BYU. Um, It was called Color of the Day. I created a whole color palette that would go, it was like gradients by color for the whole year. And then the idea was that brands could pay to have an item in a specific color featured. You could save your favorite colors, create palettes, that kind of thing. So that's an intro to Cobb. And what I want to start with today is Cobb's experience, your experience as a student employee, because that was your first introduction to technology broadly. And so I want to ask you about that and hear about what that was like. So what was your job? This was at the same office, but after he moved from doing accounting, financial stuff to web stuff. So what was your job there and what did you do? Yeah, so I I moved into a role where I was basically a, a web application developer. So I was working on what we called the housing website. But this is the website where everyone who went to our university and lived on campus would go to choose where they were going to live and say who they wanted their roommate to be and sign up for a meal plan and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it was it was both a, a visual and a, a technical type of role because uh, I was designing, you know, we didn't have a designer there. And so I was, you know, just weighing in on what I thought the application or the website should look like um, as it was walking you through this, you know, choosing your room experience, mm-hmm. but also, you know, building out the actual technology behind it uh that was you know doing the reservations and the booking in our system and making sure that two people weren't chasing choosing the same bed and you know actually signing you up to get money on your card for your meal plan and all of that sort of back-end technical process yeah i was gonna say what we think of as the housing website for a university is like yeah go choose your room fill out your form make your deposit and you were doing that, but you were also doing the actual programming on the back end so that when somebody paid their deposit, it would actually go through to the right account kind of thing. Yep, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of an interesting experience that I had working at the housing department is because that's where I first learned uh, kind of about the intersection of technology and how non-technologists view <laughs> technology. Uh, which is partially through design, because uh, a, a quote that I heard somewhere that that really resonated with me, especially when I was working at this job, trying to work with some less technical people building what I thought of as a, as a technical product, uh, which is that to the end user, the user interface is the application. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So I, I would find myself talking to other, you know, other employees or leaders about this thing that we are trying to build. And these were non-technical folks. And <laughs> I feel like they, you know, we just weren't talking about the same thing. I, I was having a hard time describing what it needed to do, how it was going to do it. And I realized after some time that I was talking about this application in a way that they had never imagined it to exist. They didn't because... even have a framework for understanding what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I think it was at some point that I was trying to describe what was going to happen during a certain process. And someone said, what button are you talking about? And I realized that to them, the button was the application. Mm-hmm. To me, the button was like this thing that I put on the screen that would trigger this process. And, you know, that process was this code that I had written that would do this thing. But to this more, I guess, you know, sometimes we use the language of business focused person versus a technology focused person that that button was the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of an interesting eye opening experience for me and has kind of informed a little bit of the way that I work. So I currently work as a, a, a technology consultant and I'm often helping clients build technical solutions, build technology to, to solve the business problems that they have or meet their customers need. Uh, but I'm often working with, with people who are, are not you know, trained in technology. They're, they're not software developers. Mm-hmm. And they, they learn what they need to, to to communicate with technologists. But I've, I've also tried to kind of specialize in learning how to talk about technology in a way that's approachable. And uh, often the interface for that is kind of the design, the, the, the visual aspect of what it is that we're building. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're being very nice in describing these people as non-technical. <laughs> 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 okay, so tell us a little bit now we've heard about kind of your first job experience tell us about the job that you have now i i want to know about the consulting firm that you work for and i want to know about their brand which is really a sneaky way of talking about this because i already know about this brand but i think it's super interesting yeah so i'm uh i'm a technology consultant um i work for a company called paraveda solutions and we help clients and all sort of industries to to basically solve business problems using technology. And, you know, there's a more kind of a business or management focused consulting arm of the company that I work with. Um, but I'm mostly working with consulting that's that's particular to technology. So, so what does that mean? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is that we're usually writing software okay. for clients. When um, people ask me, I often say like, oh, he's in tech consulting. Oh, what does he do? Oh, he's a software developer, basically. Yeah. So it's it's pretty varied, um, and based off of what our client needs, we might be like building a front end application that their you know their customers are going to use, or we might be helping them build some more business focused tools like some reporting. We might be building something that's completely in the back end, just processing or, or or dealing with data that maybe is used for analytics but isn't seen by most folks. We might be helping them to. To migrate or to modernize their their technology, so uh, helping them move their services to the cloud, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, pretty varied, but it usually some usually basically falls under the umbrella of we're we're helping them build software. And at the beginning of my career uh, at this company, I was mostly a developer, so you know doing the work of mm-hmm. uh, of writing the code to make these tools. Now I'm still very technical, but I I'm more now manage technical projects. So there's, you know, there's, there's project managers in many fields. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a technical project manager for the most part in my role right now. Um, and also we often say an architect. So before we build something, we kind of decide what's kind of the best practices that we're going to try to follow to build this thing. What technologies are we going to select? What are kind of the, the paradigms that we're going to follow as we build this? Mm-hmm. Getting involved before we make something to decide how we're going to make it so that it's it's done intentionally. Yeah, I love that. So what kind of clients do you work with in the in the technical stuff? Yeah, as far as like the industries of the clients that I've worked with and the clients that my company works with, it's it's super varied, honestly. Um everything from airlines to insurance to restaurants to bakeries to you know Sports teams, uh, really kind of mm-hmm. a, a pretty wide uh, base of different industries. And also, you know, each of those clients is, is trying to solve a, a slightly different problem. Mm-hmm. So my company often describes its consultants as generalists. You know, I'm not the most knowledgeable in specific X technology, but I try to be able to pick up any given technology to solve problems with it. And... Is there a minimum or maximum size of company that you work with? Like, are your clients all small businesses, large businesses? Is that varied too? Yeah, it's uh, completely varied. 
Um, we have, you know, Fortune 100 companies as clients and also, you know, startups. So really, it's it's quite varied. Interesting. Okay, so tell me, how would you describe the Paraveda brand? That's a good question. Visually, the brand, you can probably describe this so much better than I can because you have I'm design so curious to see how you're vocabulary. Uh, it's blue. No, it's it is blue mostly. <laughs> um, it's professional, I think. Mm -hmm. It's hold on, I'm wearing a Parveda shirt right now. Let me take a look at the logo. Um, I don't know if this is what you want to dissect. Um, no, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a little P in the 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 word Parveda, and it's kind of stylized to look like a question mark, and that's. Uh, really to kind of indicate the nature of the work that we try to do, which is basically answering questions, solving problems. I like that. Okay, tell me about the brand vibe. <laughs> I'll help, tell you about that. Let me know how to answer this question. Okay, this is, this is why I'm asking this question. I've been really impressed with Parveda Solutions as a company because I think they have very strong brand values Maybe this is just me looking at things through the lens of branding, but I feel like they have really strong values and they stick to them. As a consulting firm, what they're selling is not a specific product or even a specific technology solution, right? Because it's varied. What they're selling is the consultants. Mm. And so I have been really impressed because there seems to be a strong culture of growth and feedback and improvement at Paraveda that I think translates into the actual work that you deliver. And we've talked about this sometimes. There's a book by Simon Sinek called The Infinite Game. I may have mentioned it on this podcast before, but I think Paraveda operates with an infinite game mindset and they aren't doing quick, dirty, make a buck solutions. They're thinking very, very long term. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They, they they talk about that mindset all the time where their goal is just to stay in business forever. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if you've read Infinite Game or are familiar with the concept, you win, quote unquote, in an infinite game by continuing to play the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's definitely a sustainability mindset. And it's also mm -hmm. is a strong value mindset. Mm -hmm. And part of it for sure is a is a values uh, and a culture driven organization. Mm -hmm. The, the value that you mentioned is the commitment to growing people. Mm -hmm. And that's like Paraveda's stated mission statement mm -hmm. is helping people grow to their highest, highest potential. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it sounds cheesy, but that's, it's, it's a basis for decisions that they make. Mm -hmm. And it's a basis for the way that they interact with clients. It, it informs the way that they operate. Yeah. And so it, it does things, I think, a little bit differently from other companies or other consultancies mm -hmm. uh, where the growth and the experience of the employee is prioritized, even sometimes in a way where it's prioritized is you might, you might even think above the client interest, but, but really I think the belief is that if we can attract and retain and grow really high quality consultants, like what better thing could we offer our clients? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, it kind of permeates the the culture and the way things are done. Mm -hmm, totally. Okay, so I want to hear about some of the projects that you've worked on as a consultant. And I want to ask you about the design part of what you did. So tell us a little bit about the first project that you did back when you were an intern. Yeah, so the summer before I started working at Parvado and I still in a master's program at BYU, I interned. And the internship, I was on a team of of all interns with one manager mm -hmm. from the firm. And we did kind of a philanthropic in internship where we partnered with the Dallas Zoo. Um, and we, you know, they did a mini project of helping the, the zoo just like basically define a problem that could be solved with technology. So the problem they basically defined was um, that, you know, families get older and kids start to become less engaged at the zoo and they stop coming. And so the way that we tried to solve this was by creating kind of an, an immersive, interactive phone app experience. It was like a gamified for, app. Yeah, for a little bit older kids at the zoo. So yeah, it was a gamified zoo experience. The interns didn't design everything, but we built everything. But we, mm -hmm. we had a designer uh, mm -hmm. from the firm who kind of worked 
uh, on a concept and on some wireframes and on an experience. And the experience was essentially a map-based experience where you show up at the zoo and you load up this app and it's a map of the zoo. And so the, the immediate design functionality is just this utility of helping you know where all the animals are. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, every time you visited the zoo, you would get uh, these mystery animals. So most of the exhibits would be shown a little icon of like, here's where the hippos are. I remember are. these cute icons. Uh, but then there would be a little question mark over in one of the exhibits and you have to kind of, you know, navigate GPS your way over there and find out what was at that exhibit. And once you got there, uh, you spent some time actually interacting with the animal and then you would unlock that mystery animal kind of like a little badge that you earned we're like oh you went and found the tiger and you spend a little bit of time there and you learned something about it and now you unlock that mystery animal and if you unlocked all three while you were at the zoo you earned another achievement and then there were achievements for you know coming on the weekend coming more than twice in a week you know all, all sorts of little <laughs> things to do to just increase engagement yeah uh, with kids at the zoo yeah I wish that interacting with the animals meant that you got to play with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately not. It mostly means like reading signs. Yeah, you get to read the flag. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then you had to answer a little question about the animal to unlock it. Yeah, it was like you had to learn something. Yeah. Sheesh. (laughs) Okay, so with that project, you already had designs done. And it was basically you were building the back end of the app and then implementing the front end that was already created. That's that right. Yeah. A fair way to explain that. Okay. Tell us about another project that you worked on. Yeah. The cool thing about being a consultant is Cobb has worked on, I don't know, like eight different client projects in the last five years, just really big things. So he has lots of experience to draw from. Yeah. And and as I've said, the types of technology that we work with work with are, are pretty varied. So sometimes I am working on a solution that is something visual something mm-hmm. that's a, a f- has a front end that users will see mm-hmm. and sometimes like the project i'm on right now it's it's completely invisible to a customer mm-hmm. uh, completely running in the background even that has its own versions of design which maybe we can talk about in a second but um uh, thinking about kind of some of the more visual design projects that i've worked on uh the first company i that i that i the first client that i worked with was a do-it-yourself tax software And so one of the problems that they had engaged us for is kind of, again, an intersection of design and technology. They wanted us to help increase their conversion early on in the process. Um, So specific, like a lot of applications, the very first thing that you do when you when you sign up is to enter your personal info, just like your basics, first, last name. Sorry, was this like a desktop application that they would download or was this in a browser? Uh, Both. Okay. Uh, but it, primarily a web-based application. Okay. Sorry, mm-hmm. keep going. So the beginning when you're using the tax software is like entering your information. Yeah, just your basic info about like your first and last name, your tax ID, your address, all of that stuff that you just have to have. Gotcha. Uh, to file your taxes before you get into like your income and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they found from some research is that that was the highest friction part of their application, meaning that's where they lost the most people. And it was a a really critical place in the application to not lose people because they also found that if somebody completed that just that first couple of forms, they usually completed the entire Mm. process and and followed through and paid and and all of that. But if they left during the filling out of those initial forms, they usually never came back. So that was an interesting learning. And the, the the nature of the work that we did was to really reduce any friction that the user experienced in that initial sign-up process. So, What do you mean by friction? Like, explain that more. Yeah, really just anything in the process that, that made it difficult or even that, that made the user have to think about what they were doing. So maybe I can give a couple of examples here. Things like the design of the forms, like do, are there the right number of fields on this page where mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I've filled out enough information I'm moving on and I don't have to click a zillion times to, to fill out this information. But I also don't feel like, oh my goodness, what an overwhelming form. There's so many things I have to fill out. Right. Another example could be like validations. So validations are things we've all seen on a, on a web form where, you know, if you put in something that's not a valid value, if you put 
you know, your name and a phone number field, it'll say that's not valid. Gotcha. Or like if you don't put .com on your email. Yeah, like that's not a real email address. Those types of validations are really important because again, you can't really become a paying customer unless that's accurate, especially for like filing taxes. Yeah. But it's also important that it's not annoying for the user to get through that experience. Mm -hmm. So we worked a lot on little things that you don't notice when they work well, but when they don't work well are, are really annoying. Mm -hmm. Like if you get a little red validation message before you're done filling out the form. Yes. Um, when it's like, you have to put in your last name before you can submit this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm and, going yeah, to. I just haven't done it yet. Exactly. So, you know, we had to work to make sure that those things didn't happen. And often we'd we'd feel like we addressed all the use cases and we made it really smooth. And then we'd hand it to somebody to, to test it out. And they'd immediately do something that we'd never thought of before. <laughs> and a validation message would pop up and they'd be like, "What? why is this here? And yeah. so a lot more went into it than I had probably initially realized as just a user of applications like that mm -hmm. into making that a smooth process. Mm -hmm. But in that, in that instance, we worked with a designer, uh, a, a UX designer at the client mm -hmm. who would... There's actually a team of, of UX folks that would kind of work on what should the experience be like, and then they would turn that into visuals, and then they'd hand the visuals to my team and say, build this out. Yeah. Um, and so, and we were the, the builder outers. Gotcha. UX design is fascinating to me, and I think everything is design. We could talk about this more, but so much time is spent on the smallest little details mm -hmm. that have the biggest effect. So I, I wanted to ask you... You know, was there like a dollar amount cost or benefit to making these changes? Like if they were like, hey, if we can keep more people on the first page and then they use our tax software, we'll make how much money? Yeah, uh, it was significant. And I, I can't remember the exact dollar amount, but roughly they, they said even if we could make a 1% difference in conversion mm -hmm. of people of more that many more people getting through that first section, uh -huh. it would correlate to something like a 10% increase in the final uh, amount of sales and revenue. Yeah. So, so it was definitely impactful design. Yeah, that's crazy. Tell them about, you said that there were design elements that affected the experience that were completely superficial. When I was asking about this project before, told me about that. Yeah, there were a couple of things that I found really interesting. And again, I was a little bit surprised by going from being just a user of applications like this to someone who, who worked on developing them. Mm -hmm. One of those things that I'm sure you've experienced if you've done some sort of a tech software before is often it'll, there'll be an option with these tools to like import your last year's tax return or something like that. And in our tool, when you did that, um, you know, you would kind of see stuff happening on the screen you would upload the file and wheels would be spinning and you would see oh we're gathering your information we're checking values or yeah and this whole process took you know 15 plus seconds of of work before it said okay we're done and what i learned is that that was just completely an animation and the actual importing of the tax return took less than a second but what the ux folks figured out is that People like to feel like the application is doing some work for them. Mm -hmm. If you just click upload and it just blips and says that's done, people felt like, well, was that saving? Like, did that save me any time? Did you get mm -hmm. everything? Are you missing something? Yeah. And so the the feeling of like, oh yeah, we're really crunching the numbers for you. We're really working hard. Yeah. Was more valuable to people even than the speed of the application, yeah. which is totally contrary to everything you ever hear about websites and web speed which is the faster the better yeah which goes to show the value of ux design and research and all of that i love that okay tell us about a more recent project you've done yeah so more recently i was working at a client which sold insurance and when you sell insurance and you buy a policy you, you sign a bunch of forms right and this client discovered that they could probably save a bunch of money if they built their own signature, you know, solution for getting collecting digital signatures from clients or from their customers, rather than paying for some third party software. Mm -hmm. And so we helped them with that. Some of the interesting design considerations there, I, I found were interesting as we worked on this project is, we kind of got to decide what should this experience look like? How should we represent this? And what we kind of learned is that 
there's there's a digital signature experience is is kind of just a made up thing, right? It's there's no law that says it has to look a certain way. It could but be implemented it as just a checkbox or a button or whatever, right? And yes, it has a it has a physical analog, right? Yeah. Where a digital signature is a replacement of when you used to sign with a pen, right? That ends up being a key part of the experience is like, you know, seeing your name there. Mm-hmm. But also even just like, there's obviously some some differences with signing something digitally. But what I found interesting there was that there's there's kind of an expected experience. Mm-hmm. Like we've all probably used different softwares that collect digital signatures, but there's there's kind of a flow to it that we've come to expect. Mm-hmm. And we found that that's something that we wanted to try to replicate as much as possible. Not, you know, not copying any one other tool exactly. But kind of following that same process to make the user feel like they're in a digital signing experience. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we worked on in terms of the design of uh, of that particular tool. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's really interesting. Abby and I discussed this a little bit in our trendy or timeless episode when I talked about the design of corporate illustrations and stuff. So much of what we do in the digital world is a copy or some type of reflection of something that we have in the physical world. Mm -hmm. But more and more, there are things that we don't have in the physical world that we have in the digital world. And I'm super curious to see how our expectations for design change. And I almost wonder if a we'll start to see our own expectations for how things should look digitally and B, I wonder if we'll start seeing more analog items that are fashioned after digital items. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, kind of a digital first mm-hmm. versus analog first. Yeah, because so many things that we have, like we talked about this on your computer, the file folder icon mm-hmm. looks like a physical file folder because that's back in the day, like how we understood storing documents. Right. But now... Do we have any file folders in real life? Well, I do because I love to organize <laughs> crap like that. But most people our age wouldn't have stuff like that. And so a different physical item would maybe make more sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Reminds me of that meme about if you showed kids from today a floppy disk, they would be confused why you have a physical version of a save icon. Yes. Or even like the phone icon looks like an old phone handset and i'm like how long will it be until we change that icon because nobody has a phone like that yeah you know yeah and technology is is full of analogs Mm -hmm. to to the physical this is a a principle of you know designing graphic user interfaces and yeah and even operating systems uh, the graphical portion for for computers even the idea of a desktop originally on your computer yeah is an analog for your your actual yeah, your desktop actual desk. where you put your documents and do your work like mm-hmm. why would it be called a desktop other otherwise you know right but you know the the first computer experiences uh, were much less approachable to people because it was it was text in a terminal yeah uh, there was it, there was not a great analog for it and computers started to become a lot more used by the general populace mm-hmm. when they adopted these analog mm-hmm. you know kind of metaphors yeah. I also feel like there's probably a whole conversation that we could have about the shift of computers from being for technical people only to the rise of the personal computer. Yeah. And like that whole change. As we were talking tonight, Cobb was feeling a little bit unsure of like what he had to say or offer to this conversation. And I was, everything that you do is so related to this. And as we were chatting, he was, I guess what I do is more related to design than I thought. And I said, like, yes, because everything is design. Like if you, this is obviously my bias, but I think if you switch the word design for experience or solution, you realize that everything is really related to the way that something is designed. And I even think, you know, some of what you're doing, like you were saying, is just completely in the back end where it's like nobody sees it. But what you're doing is organizing data and making it accessible to people. And in my mind, I'm like, that is still design. It's a different type of design, obviously, but there's still that element of making it work. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of overlap between what you do and what I do. 
Definitely. Um, even today, my team was talking about the work that I'm doing right now is is very much in the background that my clients, customers are never going to see what I'm working on. And even most of the employees of this company are never going to see what I'm working on. It's It's kind of moving data from one place to another for people who need it for analysis. Mm-hmm. But we still have to design it mm-hmm. uh, in a way that makes it usable. Even we yeah. have to experience we have to consider the experience of the other, you know, data analysts or software developers who are going to be trying to integrate with the thing that we've built and use it mm-hmm. to get the data. So even though no part of that is is visual or even customer facing per se, we have to design it. Mm-hmm. Right, so that it can fill its purpose and and be used easily. Mm-hmm. And there's still standards, whether that's explicit for a specific company or across the board, or whether it's just understood. But there's still some some patterns that you have to follow. Definitely, love that. Okay, so now Cobb is going to have the chance to ask me some questions, which hopefully will be just as interesting for you, even though you hear me talk every week. <laughs> All right. So you've asked me a bunch of questions about design and technology. So maybe I can turn the tables here and ask you a few questions about technology and design. Okay. Uh, so let me start with this one. How do you think that technology has influenced or changed design over whatever time horizon you want to talk about? Yeah, so... This is a good question. And I think there's probably a broader implication of this. But the first thing that my mind went to is like, how has technology changed graphic design? Mm -hmm. And graphic design kind of has two arms, I guess. One is like the art of graphic design. And one is graphic design, like in communication. And so both of those started as physical processes of creating art. So like screen printing or linotype, even like my mom used to work as a, as a staffer on Capitol Hill. And she talks about how when they wanted to watermark stationery, they would print something or like cut it out of a magazine and then photocopy it and then do it so many times that it would get lighter and then copy hmm. onto the back of the paper. So they would have this watermark. Like it was this very physical way of creating something. Yeah. And I just think that now we have the technology to literally create whatever we want on a screen. And sometimes I get a little in my head about like, what am I creating? Like, does it exist if it doesn't exist in the physical world? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why I do love working on printed products. Like, you know, I've done some cookbooks and journals and things like that, which I always really enjoy. But like I said, I also think that this is going to sound very meta, but I really feel like the physical world and the digital world are becoming so integrated that if you create something digitally, you are creating it in the real world. Interesting. I don't think that really answered your question. (laughs) It was insightful. (laughs) There you go. So what, tools do you use uh in your design work what technology helps you to to do your job yeah i was gonna say i have never used an exacto knife like my mom or a copy machine for that matter to do anything all of my work is done digitally i guess that's not totally fair because when i am finding inspiration for a project i do feel very inspired by physical experiences. You know this, but I love going shopping truly for the visual experience. Like I love seeing how things are organized and laid out and the colors and all of those things. I even like like going to libraries and museums, that kind of thing. I wouldn't classify that as a tool, but rather part of my process. The tools that I use are all software-based, either desktop applications or web applications. And there's like the standard Adobe programs mm-hmm. that are industry standard, quote unquote. And then I am a proud Canva user. And I actually could do a whole podcast just about Canva because I think it is totally changing the design industry really in a good way. I think lots of designers are kind of threatened by Canva and 
this is so snarky, but I think that if you're threatened by Canva as a designer, you're probably not a very good designer. Hmm. But also, my value as a designer is not just in my ability to make something look pretty. It's in my decision making and my ability to understand a problem and solve that problem like you do with technology. I'm solving it with design. And so Canva is just a tool that I use to help me do that. And I love it because Canva takes all of the difficulty that you have in Adobe Illustrator or whatever and makes it so easy for anybody to use. And I kind of think of it like iPhones changing the world of photography, where I don't think iPhones have made professional photographers obsolete. I think they've just raised the bar on our expectation Mm. for good photos. Yeah, And it does change things. We have more photos and videos of our kids than our parents did, right? Yeah. But like, we still hire a professional to take our photos and... I still see the value in having a professional photographer. So I just think it's very, very interesting to see how things change. And I think where I am still figuring out where I stand with technology and design is the use of AI. Mm. Because in general, I believe that, you know, things are just tools, but there's something about using AI to design things that for me, it, it just doesn't spark joy in the same way. Interesting. And, um, you know, I'm trying to decide how I, how I feel about it and I haven't come to a solid conclusion yet. Yeah. You touched on something that's kind of interesting about technology and how it kind of makes design easy in some ways, but mm-hmm. your job as a, as a designer or someone in that field mm-hmm. is, is kind of to add a different sort of value uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's interesting because it applies to technology and probably a lot of other fields as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about my work and how I'm a consultant, right? But I, I I can see in your work that you you know sometimes you call yourself a, a designer, but I think you're a, a consultant as well, mm-hmm. right? You're you're adding this value other that's that's more than just the, the visuals that you're handing off to your clients. Tell mm-hmm. me about that. Yeah, I think it's. You asked me earlier, like, what do people misunderstand about your work? And I think I do a pretty good job educating people about, like, what I do and what's involved in that. But I think overall, because there are different levels of design, right? Like, there's design that just looks good, and then there's design that is strategic. And the kind of design that I do is not just visual, it is very, very strategic. And I usually don't. I mean, I call myself a designer because it helps people understand what it is that I'm doing. Sure. But I really do think of myself as a strategist and a consultant and and a problem solver Mm -hmm. in lots of different capacities where like when you were talking about the UX designers who are finding out that people want to know that the technology is doing some work for them or that they don't want to get frustrated by the little red asterisk popping up. I'm doing the same thing. It's just in a different way. And I think it is a little bit harder. Well, I think it's more interesting with branding because it's so subjective and perception based. And especially where I am working primarily with personal brands that I'm really trying to capture the unique perspective and personality of an individual and also help that resonate with their ideal clients. Sometimes it's hard because so much of my work is based on people's perceptions and how people feel about it. Mm -hmm. But there's even a strategy to that. Yeah. Even that is a lot of research and writing and brainstorming and thinking. And it's not just, well, this is what this color makes me feel. So we're going to use that. Sure. And my clients, I feel like, are usually kind of aware yeah. That that's what's going to happen, but they don't realize the level maybe at which I'm really going to dive into the strategy of that. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that you point out that the design that you do mm. is strategic and not even just visually strategic. I chose this color for this reason, but you, you actually dive into the business strategy of your clients mm-hmm. and you let that inform the way that their business is going to be perceived. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples of a time when you were able to help a client not just, you know, deliver some visuals, but actually help kind of 
strategize with them on their business as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about this because I do this obviously for all of my clients, but there's some where I feel like I've really been able to hone in and give words to something that they were struggling to articulate. Yeah. So my client, Melissa Ashton, she had kind of this turmoil going on because on the one hand, she was like, I want to help people with personal development and changing their mindset and just like kind of this generalized life coaching. But then at the same time, she is a sought after speaker and executive leadership coach. And she does kind of like business development. And so she was like, am I both? Am I one or the other? Mm -hmm. How do I capture this? And to her, it felt cohesive, but she was struggling to articulate that. And so the first thing that we did before we got into any of the visuals was come up with the right words. And for her, the kind of sum of all of it was the tagline that we used, which was the business of you. Mm. And that was the common thread that we pulled out in all of her branding. And so that concept also became the narrative for her visual, which was like this Venn diagram. I don't know if you remember me designing this icon where it was showing the intersection of business development and personal development. And I feel like what we were able to do is not just come up with the right words, even though I think that is one really crucial thing that happens. But for her, it was really being able to see her own value and the meaning in what she was offering beyond just the face value of, I do leadership conferences, or I work with people one-on-one who've had a traumatic life event. You know, It was like, I'm really helping people change the way they experience the world. And I think there's just such a big difference between believing what you do is good and important and really having the words and the visuals to describe it. And so I gave her all of that. Yeah. For myself, I know I can be pretty lofty and aspirational when I talk about the value of branding, but I also know really specifically what the value of branding is. Mm -hmm. And that's what allows me to set the prices that I want and work with the clients that I want because I do have this very concrete understanding of the value and the meaning that I'm providing for my clients. I like that. So my last question for you, which is really about me, (laughs) is you have the unique perspective of seeing my process and my business from the inside for multiple clients across kind of a wide variety of industries. And I'm curious what stands out to you about my process and my work and what I do. Yeah. I think my first answer is something we've we've kind of already touched on a little bit, but I'll maybe say it this way. I, I feel like often your clients get more than they realize they were going to get. Um, yeah. And and what I mean by that is I think, or I assume that maybe sometimes people are attracted to work with you because they want something beautiful, right? Yeah. And you, you, you absolutely deliver on that. You, you've got a lot of expertise there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're often surprised to find just how strategic it is mm-hmm. along the way, how, how, how much you get into kind of the, the what and the why of, of what their business is doing mm-hmm. and translate that into, okay, this is how we can work on the way that you're perceived. So you actually can reach the people that you're trying to reach and, and do that and have that effect on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that often ends up being transformational where instead of just walking away with a logo and a typeface, you know, they walk away sometimes with a, a refreshed understanding of what their business is about or or the, the strategy for their business mm-hmm. because the way that you design is is not just pretty, it's strategic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that definitely is unique to the way that you work. Yeah. Another thing that's been really interesting for me to see as you know, you have have talked to me about your work. Rebecca will often tell me that she she needs some business talk. She needs to <laughs> talk to call it business therapy. Business therapy talk to, you know, what am I going to do for this client? How am I going to 
represent this brand. And I've just always been amazed uh, when you've done this with me or with your with your clients at the design vocabulary that you have. I think most of us are just not trained to talk about visual things the way that you are, but you have so many metaphors for describing things that are so helpful. And I think that that really makes the experience of working with you really valuable because you can get concrete about something that for the rest of us is just so ethereal. And because you can put it into words, again, you can get strategic about it. Mm-hmm. I think that another way that this happens is you can be a translator for for your clients where again they they've got their own expertise in their own field. Yeah. But when it comes to describing the visuals of their brand or or just the the brand itself, mm-hmm. they they kind of know what they want. They have this vision, mm-hmm. but they're just not used to putting that into words. Mm-hmm. And so they they may fumble around with it a little bit, but you're able to see through what they're saying and put on your your brand strategist goggles and interpret it. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes put things into words for them that they've felt for a long time, but, but never known how to say mm-hmm. whether that's about, again, the strategy of their, their brand or, or who they are, or who they're trying to reach or about the visuals and how they want it to feel. You have this mm-hmm. way of being able to, to talk about all of those things that I think is really valuable. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think part of it is kind of a natural gift. Uh-huh. Like I've said, I've always kind of been able to talk to somebody and even if they are describing very poorly what they want it's like i can see it in my mind Mm -hmm. but i've also worked really hard to be able to put words to that image yeah and this is like a woo-woo thing but like i really believe that if you can't say it with words you can't create it yeah and if you can say it with words you can say it with visuals and then it will exist in the real world and so that's why truly before i design anything i put it out in words and I even like talk about it with my client. This is what I'm thinking. These are the reasons why. Because once we start using that vocabulary, then the visuals come really naturally. Yeah. I like that. Well, I think that about sums up everything that we wanted to talk about today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and with me. And thanks for having me. <laughs> I'll put a link to uh Cobb's LinkedIn. <laughs> in the show notes and we'll join you next time on aesthetically speaking thanks everybody thanks thanks for joining us today we hope you enjoyed listening to aesthetically speaking if you want to support the podcast please leave us a nice review or connect with us on instagram at rebecca peterson studio 